welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit thevineoc.com. Amen. Well, hey, good morning. Uh, again, we are on a series for the season of Advent, and uh, today we have a special treat. I've invited our friend Greg Gansel to uh, guest preach today. Yeah, yeah, give it up for Greg. If you don't know Greg, he's one of the leaders uh, of our church. He's on our church council. He's a professor at Biola University, and he's just an awesome guy. And so, Greg, we're, 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 we're excited to have you with us. Please, uh, let, let's join me, join me in praying. So, Father, we thank you uh, for your word, that you are God who speaks, and uh, we pray, Lord, that you would just speak to us in a fresh way today, God. And I pray your anointing upon Greg now that you would just give him your words uh, as he speaks. And would you just give us open hearts, Lord, to receive all that you want to say to us today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to be anywhere. <laughs> That's an old joke, right? Um, we're, we are finishing this Advent series on preparing the way and we've been looking at some of the letters that Jesus wrote to the churches in, in the second and third chapter of um, Revelation. And so we're looking at the, at the letter to Laodicea. And I, I had to do a lot of research to figure out where this place was and what it was about. And uh, so I want to talk about Laodicea, the city, for a moment. Laodicea is, uh, well, it was 10 miles west of the city of Colossae, which is um, interesting because Paul wrote one of his letters to the church of the Colossians who were in Colossae. And at the end of that letter, he says to them, when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the the letter from Laodicea. So Paul had actually written to Laodicea himself. We, we probably don't have that letter, although there are a few scholars who think that the letter to the Ephesians um, circulated, and that's the one that Paul is talking about um, here. I don't know. But um, they, they had a relationship with, the, with uh, Colossae, and, and there were lots of interesting reasons for that. Um, Laodicea is a very rich city um, for the time. It, it was famous for its black wool industry. And, and apparently they wove garments of this very silky black wool that even hundreds of years later, they were known for, for, for this uh, um, maybe fashion industry, right? It was, they were famous all over the Mediterranean world for this. They also had a medical school that, uh, nearby that specialized in um, ear things, and they had an eye solve. I can't say that word solve. Uh, Michael read it as salve, and I thought I, that's probably the way it's actually pronounced. Um, uh, an ointment to, to, clean, to cleanse the eyes. Um, and so this is one of, the, one of the things that Jesus brings up in the letter, in the background. There was a, a, a vibrant banking industry, and um, this, this town was so rich that in AD 60, there was a, a major earthquake and that caused a lot of damage, and, this, and the city did, refused help from the Roman Empire. They said, no, we, we can take care of ourselves, and they rebuilt the city themselves. So it's a, it's a, it's a very wealthy place, 
And it seems to have, as far as we can tell, a fierce independence streak as a result of that. And some of this might uh, ring a bell with us. Um, it did have one major weakness as a city, and that was its water supply. Right? It had no uh, local water supply. So what, what they did is they built a strong aqueduct system, some of which archaeologists have found and, and can talk about. They pumped hot water from Hierapolis, about six miles away, and cold water from Colossae. But as the water was pumped, by the time it got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. And it had picked up all of the sediment from the aqueduct system, a lot of lime and things. So it's kind of like um, uh, Gary, Indiana, perhaps, or Flint, Michigan, these cities that are known for having a, um, almost a toxic uh, water system. Um, it made the city vulnerable to enemies because you could cut off the water and leave the city stranded. So this is some of the background of the city. And uh, on the next slide, I, I want to start talking about the diagnosis that Jesus gives to them. Um, the first is that the, true, the church was lukewarm. And the second was that the church was self-deceived. I believe these are related to each other. Um, but let's look at the, the text about being lukewarm. On the next slide, Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Um, so we can deduce from this that Jesus wasn't happy about, this, about their <laughs> spiritual condition, right? Um, secondly, the church was self-deceived. And there's a text there. Um, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing but not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So we see that Jesus offers a diagnosis of their condition before he brings in a solution. And there's a principle behind this that's helpful for me, is that everywhere the gospel goes, it brings a correction and an affirmation. Right? The, the gospel goes into every culture affirming things in the culture, but also correcting. And, and when I embrace the gospel and as I'm encountering Jesus, he is going to do the same thing in my life. There are going to be things that he affirms, but there's always going to be room for correction. So what does it mean to be lukewarm? Well, at first glance, it seems like it's a measure of our emotional response to Jesus or our spiritual passion. To be hot is to have a high degree of spiritual passion. To be cold is to be spiritually dead. To be lukewarm is, is trying to play both sides of the fence, kind of straddling. Some commentators, however, argue that this can't be what the text actually means. What they're saying is, is Jesus would never prefer someone to be spiritually dead. Right? And some have argued that this metaphor of using heat and cold to reflect the condition of our heart wasn't known in those days. But other commentators argue that, well, there is a little evidence of this kind of a metaphor that was circulating. And so there is some sense of connecting this with the, uh, the condition of our hearts spiritually. Jesus might prefer us to be cold, because if we're cold, we can be reached. 
if we're lukewarm, we, we think we're fine the way we are. Think of the Pharisee in the gospel story. I, I thank you, God, that I am not like other people. His self-sufficiency had made him um, blind to his own need, his own spiritual condition. So, so if we connect being lukewarm with being self-deceived, we can see that maybe it's better to be cold because then we can hear the gospel as good news. And so, so there is kind of this conversation among the commentators about this. Um, the second diagnosis is that the church was self-deceived. So what, what does that mean? Well, they, they, they have, they're self-deceived in their estimate of themselves. The text says, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Which is saying the same thing three times. There's, there's an emphasis, right? And, and, and the emphasis is not just that I happen to be rich, but I have prospered through, basically through my own work. I am self-sufficient. That's the deception. I am self-sufficient. Remember the Pharisees standing in prayer. I thank you that I'm not like these people. And then he goes on and says, the reason I'm not like them is I do all these good things. Sometimes, to be honest, I thank God I'm not like other people, and I think it's just your mercy. I, I, was, I was walking to campus last fall, one of those rare days that I was actually going to the gym, and I began to thank God that I could walk, because I, I, I know people who can't. Right? And, and, but it wasn't self-sufficiency. It was like, God, you've given me these mercies that make me different. The Pharisee prays, I am not like extortioners, but you know, I actually am exactly like extortioners. I've never been convicted of extortion, <laughs> right? But you know, I'm a manipulative, selfish person. I'm, I'm like the adulterers, right? Because I, I, I'm broken sexually like everybody. It's a mercy of God in my life. What does it mean to be self-deceived? Now, note the irony in Jesus' assessment. You are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That's not just a litany of, of critique. He's challenging all their points of pride. They are wretched and pitiable despite their self-sufficient attempt at being independent. They are poor despite their great wealth of their trade and banking industry and their public identity as a rich city. They are blind despite the fact they have the medical school with the great eyes out that, that cures or at least helps blindness. They are naked despite being leaders in the fashion industry with their wool. Right? So Jesus' um, critique reveals the inadequacy of the very things they cling to, to be self-sufficient. And I think lukewarmness is related. The church was lukewarm because it thought it was rich and it didn't know it was poor. It thought it was clothed when it needed to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It thought it could see clearly when it was blind. That's Laodicea, the, the city, Laodicea, the church. Let's look at a... a a couple of seconds on America, the city. We are just like them. We are rich. Now, I am confident no one in this room thinks, wow, I'm really rich. 
right? You know, and I know some of your stories, and, and we, we struggle financially. Um, and, of course, Southern California is a very expensive place to live, and, and it's a struggle. But, but to be honest, we, we, we are rich as a, as a nation, right? Most of us are not in danger of being forced into migration by war or tyranny or persecution. Most of us can find food. We live in Southern California, which is one of the richest places in one of the richest states in the richest country. And that's part of our identity. The issue with being rich is not as much having the money to be comfortable, but it's how does this shape my identity? We are also a leader in fashion, or so I'm told. <laughs> right? I decided I'm just gonna keep wearing the same things and eventually they'll come into style. I won't know that they're in style, but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't even matter, right? We take ourselves to be clothed when we are really naked. We have the greatest education. And, and this is dear to my heart. Education is very important to me, and it's one of the mercies of God that I've been able to participate. Um, and as a result, we are tenaciously independent. I was thinking about this, uh, thinking about the earthquake in, in Laodicea. You know, when things happen around the world, People in America and, and our government is quick to help, right? But when things happen here, we don't want help because we're tenaciously independent. Do we invite foreign aid when, when, when we have fires? It's hard enough in California for us to allow firefighters in Nevada to help us. We're tenaciously independent. We are self-sufficient. So how do these contours shape my life? Well, I, I long to be self-sufficient. All right, true confession. I want to be rich. Okay? <laughs> think, think about this. Why? Right? So we, we have this uh, faculty discussion group. We meet every couple of weeks, and uh, Dave and Debbie are in it. Janie's in it. It's about seven couples. And we were talking last year, and, and so I, I spun this scenario. What if somehow you got a lottery ticket and you won a billion dollars? How much of it would you keep and why? And it was really great discussion. And, and, and the very fact that I've thought about it <laughs> says something about my soul, right? I thought, well, I'd, I'd keep $10 million, but why? Well, you know, I have so many things I'd love to give money to but I, I, I'd keep $10 million. The question is why? I, I heard Andy Crouch say one time that the promise of money is independence. And the reason I, want, I would keep $10 million is I want to be independent. I don't want to have to worry. Now, it's one thing to be independent of other people, and so I'm not literally needing 
other people to help me pay my bills, but it's independence from God. I don't want to have to worry, which means I don't want to have to take my worries to the throne of grace, which means I don't have to depend on Jesus. And that's the temptation. So it's relatively easy for me to become lukewarm. And, 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 and there's lots of cultural strains that conspire to help me be lukewarm because it's fairly common for me to um, be self-deceived about my self-sufficiency. Now, the whole lukewarm metaphor bothers me, okay? <laughs> Here's another true confession. So if I, if I were to, I would never do this because it's, it's too vulnerable. But if I were to come up to you and say, are you sure you're not a little bit lukewarm? And it's the same thing with the metaphor from the church, the letter to the church of Ephesus on, on losing your first love. Are you sure you haven't lost some of your first love? I, I mean, if someone said that to me, I would say, well, well of course I'm lukewarm, right? Of course I've lost my first love, right? And, 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 I, and I think there's, a, there's a, a, a danger in terms of confusing what it means to have our first love with some kind of sustained emotional experience with God. Now, there's nothing wrong with a sustained emotional experience with God, but we don't have that all the time. And, and it's because life is hard. Right? It, it's a big danger for those of us who came to Christ or began to walk with Jesus closely when we were teenagers or in college and we had lots of close friends and Bible study and, 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 and the future was wide open. And I remember sitting with my friends in college saying, what will it be like in 40 years when we've walked with God for 40 years? And... It's been a great adventure. But when I was in college, my life was very simple. Right? I didn't have to cook. I had a dining hall. I, I, I walked to my classes occasionally when I showed up at my classes. Right? You know, I had all my friends right with me. I didn't have to deal with sickness or limitations. And um, so, of course... I had a sustained emotional experience with God. But life is hard. Right? You get out of college, you, you, you begin to work. Relationships take sustained effort. Um, the complexities of life can conspire to drive a wedge between me and God. Um, but these facts don't mean that we've lost our first love or that we're lukewarm. These are kind of the arena of living out a life of following Jesus. The danger is, is if I look for lukewarmness, I can always find something in my life that's less than exciting. Right? And so my, my emotional level, there was a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. I, I tried to find it, and I couldn't find it online. And he says something like this, Calvin, who's one of my heroes, he says, I'm pretty happy right now. And the next panel, he says, but, you know, I really should be ecstatic. <laughs> I'm not ecstatic. Last panel, 
now I'm disappointed, <laughs> right? And I think sometimes that's how we can carry our emotional life. We said, oh, I should, I should have this just linear, progressive, increasing joy in my encounter with Jesus. So my emotional state is not a reliable guide to the truth of my spiritual condition. So how do we relate our emotional state to, to our spiritual condition. I, I like the analogy of going fishing. When you fish, there's certain kinds of fishing where you use a bobber, right? And you've, you throw the line out and the bobber floats and then the line dangles, there's a hook with bait on it, hopefully, and um, the bobber moves. Now, if the bobber moves, doesn't mean you've caught a fish. Maybe a weed got caught on your line that's pulling the bobber, um, maybe something else. But what, every time the bobber moves, you kind of check what's going on. It's like, a, it's like one of the warning lights on your dashboard. You're supposed to check those. I know most of us ignore them. My, my father went, finally just put a piece of tape over one of the lights. <laughs> it like annoys me. I'm not looking at it anymore. Right? When the bobber moves, you check it out. When, when, when I find myself in an emotionally dry situation, that's like the bobber moving. Doesn't mean I'm lukewarm or I've lost my first love, but it, it's an opportunity to check. Lord, how am I doing? Perhaps I'm just tired or disappointed or grieving or overworked. I have to ask myself at that point, Am I allowing Jesus to enter here? And in my mind, that's, that's the hard question, and that's the question that is diagnostic for me in terms of am I becoming more like the Pharisee or, or am I becoming more like the tax collector? Am I walking in self-sufficiency? If I'm allowing Jesus to enter, then I'm not walking further into self-sufficiency. But if somehow I'm not... I'm maintaining my distance, then I'm walking further into self-sufficiency. If I repent and invite him into my chaos, I turn towards him. I'm not walking into self-sufficiency. But if I turn from him, the temperature shifts in my soul. So I think I stumble into self-reliance regularly without thinking, but sometimes I choose it, and that's when the temperature changes. Um, so, so all of that is to assure you that when life is hard, that's not an indication of failure. That's an indication of reality. And, we, and, and Jesus wants to walk with us in the hard life. So let's look for a minute at the counsel of Jesus, the next part of the text. Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Now, the commentators tell me that in the structure of this sentence, the phrase from me is emphatic. It's emphasized. In other words, buy from me. I am the source of the true wealth, 
I am the source of the true garments. I am the source of the true cure for our blindness. We need the right gold. We need the right garments. We need the right eye salve. We need to be informed by the riches of the gospel of what God has done for us in Christ and what Jesus wants to do for us. Those are the riches. And not deceived by the appeal of the riches around us. We must be clothed in the white garments of righteousness purchased at the cross rather than in the fashionable ways I can cover myself up and try to hide my shame. I need him to anoint my eyes so I can see clearly, see him clearly, see myself clearly, see the world clearly. And now listen to the invitation of Jesus. Next slide. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So his invitation is ongoing. He stands and knocks gently. Now normally we take that verse about knocking on the door and we use it in evangelistic contexts. And, and that's perfectly appropriate. That's not, that's not a, a, a theological problem because Jesus is standing at the door of unbelievers souls and minds and hearts and, and longs to be invited in. But it's actually an ongoing invitation for those who are already followers of Jesus. Right? He stands and he knocks. And he'll stand and knock until we open the door. So am I recognizing his knock? When I hear the knock, then my choice determines my spiritual condition. Am I inviting him in to be with me in the chaos of today, in my work, in my family, in my relationships? Or am I just kind of ignoring the knocking and carrying on in my self-sufficiency? When I open the door, I'm not lukewarm. But as I persist in trying to navigate these things on my own, that is the step into self-sufficiency, the step into being independent, the step into being lukewarm. So I, I want to relate this to Advent as the band begins to come up. His invitation is ongoing. He stands and knocks. He entered the chaos of our world. Jesus was born and he died poor so that we could buy from him gold refined and pure. He was born and he died naked so that we could be clothed with his pure garments of righteousness. He was born and he died as the light of the world so we could see clearly he is the salve for our eyes. We see him and through seeing him we see everything else. 
he persistently knocks. As we open, he enters our world. If we allow the door to stay closed, he remains outside. So I want to read one stanza from a little town of Bethlehem. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Let's pray together. Jesus, we aim and aspire and ask you to help us be those meek souls to continually invite you into the chaos of our lives. And we thank you that, that you long to walk through life with us. We ask you to open our eyes, give us eyes to see when we're tempted to keep that door closed. Jesus' name. Amen. There we go. Amen. Thanks so much, brother. Let's take a moment just to reflect uh, on the message today. Just uh, spend a moment in silent prayer. You might just want to ask God, what are you saying to me today? What, what's the invitation for my life today? Let's just take a moment, and then we're going to continue in worship.